We'd love to hear from you so we can make our shows even better. Please share five minutes of your time with us at LegalTalkNetwork.com slash survey. You might be asking, hey, what's in it for me? Well, we'll choose five respondents who'll get to pick from three terrific prizes, courtesy of our survey sponsor, Noda, by M&T Bank. Remember, that's LegalTalkNetwork.com slash survey. Before we begin today's show, we'd like to thank our sponsors, Posh Virtual Receptionists and Axiom. Welcome to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, Matt Reynolds, a legal affairs writer with the ABA Journal in Chicago. Today, I'm joined by best-selling novelist Scott Turow to talk about his new thriller, Suspect. Hi, Scott. How are you doing today? I'm fine, Matt. How are you? I'm very good, thanks. Um, So your new novel is a legal thriller about a private investigator who's embroiled in a lurid police scandal involving a local police chief. I was just wondering if you could elaborate on that a little bit. Well, so far, so good in what you've said. The investigator is Pinky Granham, an eccentric young woman, 33 years old, weird by her own definition. For example, she wears jewelry that makes it look like she's got a common nail through her nose. She's the private investigator in the law office of a relative, Rick Dudak, and Rick and Pinky have been engaged by the local police chief who's been accused of soliciting sexual favors from three police officers in exchange for promotions on the police force. And the kicker is that the police chief is female and the accusers are men. Yeah, that was kind of something that jumped out at me when I read the novel. Um, and so I, I, the, going back to the character of Pinky, this is a character, a recurring character of yours. Is, is that right? Well, she appeared first in the last novel, which is called The Last Trial. When I'm being a wise guy, I can say that Pinky made her first appearance more than 30 years ago in The Burden of Proof because her mother was pregnant with her then and made a big point of letting everybody know she was with child. So what was kind of behind the the decision to revisit this character um, and explore her a little bit more in this new novel? I think it was the sometimes frequent experience of novelists that there's a character who sort of runs away with the book, who demands a larger role for herself. And that was Pinky in the the last novel. And I I guess I sort of made an unconscious deal with her that if she'd uh, cooperate a little bit, I'd let her have a book of her own. So, uh, and that's where we are. And so um, what was kind of the genesis of this idea? What, what made you kind of sit down and decide to write the story? You know, I can't really say why I was intrigued by the Me Too reversal. The fact of the matter is that the germ idea was Pinky's untoward fascination with her, the next door neighbor in the apartment building in which she lives, a guy who is utterly quiet doesn't associate with anybody, doesn't even bother with the mail to the extent that he walks through it in the foyer to this old apartment building. And, you know, Pinky thinks either he's a monk or a hitman or somebody in witness protection because he's entirely elusive and uh, she pays much too much attention to him. Her boss, Rick, keeps telling her he sounds like a guy who wants to be left alone. So leave him alone. And so it's, um, it's a legal thriller, that's fair to say, right? Would you call it a legal thriller? It's about a lawyer and an investigator 
There are many courtroom scenes because the chief of police has been subject to a police disciplinary proceeding that may cost her her job. And she's also the target of a grand jury investigation. So it, it seems like a legal thriller to me. Yeah, and it, it absolutely to me as well. And I, but one thing that did kind of strike me about it is it's very character driven, isn't it? Uh, and this was the first novel of yours that I read. I just wondered, is, is that kind of, to you as a writer, is that how you like to approach stories for, from character and, and then let the, the plot develop from there? Yes. I, I always say that plot is character and character is plot. If, if things are not going to seem contrived, then what happens should elucidate the personality of the characters in the book. So yeah, it's it's very character driven, and it's it's unquestionably at heart about an odd young woman coming to terms with the fact that she is not like and does not want what everybody else seems to crave. And one thing that also kind of jumped out at me is like the the the, the I don't want to spoil anything, but you you actually do take your time, don't you, to kind of get to that kind of big moment that I feel like a lot of novelists might kind of get too much quicker. And I don't want to give away any spoilers, but I I was just wondering, like the pacing of the novel, like, was that something you kind of outlined beforehand? Or did, uh, I guess this kind of speaks to your process. Do you just write without an outline or is everything very kind of already drawn out for you before you kind of start writing um, on the page? Well, I I start writing without an outline. It's very hard to embark on a complete first draft without knowing where you're going. But somewhere between the time that I start and the time that I I start on the front to back story, I do have an outline. But, you know, I, I think the readers who are familiar with my work will know that the way my books have tended to work and they seem to have pleased people, it, it's very much peeling the onion. Uh, and it's it's layer by layer. And so it is certainly true, as you're hinting at, that the plot of the novel takes a big turn in the middle. But I do take my sweet time getting to that point because, you know, I I want, frankly, readers to be invested in whether or not Lucy Gomez is going to keep her job. And she's the police chief, right? She's the police chief. So if it were not that way, then instead all the suspense would be about who done it. And are you, um, so you have a, a background as a, a kind of high-powered lawyer. Are you, are you still practicing now? I am. I resigned my position at the law firm that, at Denton's two years ago, but I'm still doing a couple of pro bono cases. And so how much does your um, background as a lawyer, how much does it inform how authentic you, you, want, you want to keep your storytelling and novel writing? You know, the novelist and the lawyer are one person. I don't experience the same bifurcation in my life that like Wallace Stevens must have being in a, being a great poet and an insurance executive. I work on the things that preoccupy me as a lawyer and as a novelist, and they have the same wellspring in the law. How tough is it like balancing your kind of vast knowledge of the law with putting that on the page and conveying that to like a general reader, is that something that's kind of always on your mind? And um, how much kind of leeway do you give yourself in terms of like maybe bending things a little bit just to kind of serve, serve the reader? 
Well, I, I know that there are a lot of very fine writers on TV and film and even in novels who cheat a little bit, quote unquote. But I've always tried not to do that. I, I was a writing fellow at Stanford for a number of years, and I was taught by a great American novelist named Wallace Stegner. And he came into class one day greatly vexed because he'd gotten a sort of piece of fan mail from a farmer in Saskatchewan about one of his uh, recent novels, which was set on the plains of Saskatchewan. And the, and the farmer said, it's a great book, but I have to tell you, you got the piece of farm equipment wrong. And Wally was really troubled by this because he thought that he had violated the contract between author and reader that uh, the author will do nothing to impede the reader's willful suspension of disbelief. Uh, and since I'm blessed with a audience that includes a lot of lawyers and a lot of trial lawyers, uh, I've always tried to adhere to the procedures they know and that I know. And what was your biggest challenge in writing the book? Well, the biggest challenge had next to nothing to do with the law. As a lawyer, I've handled police disciplinary hearings and investigative police departments and represented the police officers and police organizations. So that was a world I thought I knew. The biggest challenge, though, for somebody of my age is to write about someone who is 40 years younger. You know, and that's a large gap. I don't, perhaps stupidly, I don't regard gender as an impossible barrier. But age is you know, each generation comes with its own purchase on the world. To sort of flip myself into Pinky's mindset was, from the beginning, the most difficult task I had set myself. And did you, how did you do that? Did you like use any kind of method acting style to, how did you kind of get into the, the, the character? For the, well, because the character really is very strong and comes across on the page. I think it's native to everybody who, writes narrative to sort of always be casting your imagination into the skin of the people you see. And, you know, my, of course, my kids are even a little bit older than Pinky is, and they don't have the same kind of life experience. But I've spent, you know, considerable time, you know, thinking about, reading about, researching, uh, and ultimately testing the book on readers whose life experience was a lot closer to Pinky's than my own. Okay, well, that seems like a good place to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. As a lawyer, ever wish you could be in two places at once? You could take a call when you're in court, capture a lead during a meeting. That's where Posh comes in. We're live virtual receptionists who answer and transfer your calls so you never miss an opportunity. And the Posh app lets you control when your receptionist steps in. So if you can't answer... Posh can. And if you've got it, Posh is just a tap away. With Posh, you can save as much as 40% off your current service provider's rates. Start your free trial today at Posh.com. Axiom understands the pandemic and a looming recession are transforming how legal teams work. Tightened budgets, emerging risks, and shifting priorities mean the only certainty is uncertainty. Legal department agility is critical to your success. Axiom provides legal departments with access to cost-efficient, high-caliber, flexible in-house legal talent with deep subject matter expertise. Reimagine your legal team or your own legal career. Axiom can meet your higher standards. 
Axiom, higher standards welcome. Learn more at axiomlaw.com slash ABA. So I'm here with novelist Scott Turow to talk about his new book, Suspect. I should ask you quickly, what about the title? Um, why did you settle on that title? Well, titles are not my specialty. I've generally struggled with them. In this case, I wanted to call the book as I suspected. And that was meant to be ultimately very ironic since Pinky thinks she's clairvoyant and she is often blazingly incisive, but she is frequently completely effing wrong and doesn't recognize that. So it, it was meant to be an ironic title in that, as I suspected, you know, she's not as right as she thinks she is. My editor liked the title. My agent didn't like the title. So ultimately, I said to Ben, uh, my wonderful editor, let, let, we'll just go with the one word. And of course, the problem is the word that, as we were pronouncing it, is suspect. And Ben, ben eventually, he thought about it. He says, but, you know, they'll, they'll call it suspect instead because that's the first pronunciation. And I, I thought about it. I said, that's just perfect. That, that gets back to the ambiguity that people will eventually, as they're reading the book, realize, oh, wait a minute. You know, it's not suspect, it's suspect. Looking back to the very beginning of your career, how did, how did it all begin? Because you started off, your first novel was Presumed Innocent. So how did you kind of make that leap from lawyer to best-selling novelist? Well, as I said before, the trick was that my first ambition was to be a novelist. And uh, I was lucky enough uh, after college to uh, get a couple of fellowships, including this one at Stanford that left me out in California for five years, the last three as a lecturer in the Stanford English department. By the time I finished three years as a lecturer, I realized I did not want to be an English professor. Instead, I had this shocking fascination with the law and particularly what, what my friends from college or the ones I was making in the Bay Area, what they were doing usually in the criminal law. That just seemed to stir something in me. You know, I kept sort of getting closer and closer and Ultimately, I decided, well, I'm not going to, I don't want to be an English professor. I've written three failed novels to this point, meaning that nobody wanted to buy them. So what about law school? I'll try to write while I'm a lawyer, but at least I'll have, you know, an occupation to fall back on. And as I like to say, going to law school was the great break of my literary career. I ended up with a contract to write a nonfiction book about being a law student which is called 1L and remains in print to this day, and led me to becoming a prosecutor. Once I was a prosecutor and working in you know, criminal courtrooms, I was also in the heartland of my own personal obsessions. And that fed you know, what I was trying to scratch out every morning on the morning commuter train on my way into the city. So time was hard come by in the life of a young prosecutor. But I was writing, and uh, eventually I took a summer away from the law to finish this novel and did, you know, it, it was like riding a rocket ship once Presumed Innocent got to publishers in New York. So how much time were you carving out on that? Was it literally just on the commuter ride in 
doing a bit here, a bit there and, until you could get it done. I, I am really living testimony to what uh, Wally and uh, Dick Scowcroft, my teachers when I was a graduate student at Stanford and a fellow out there like to say, which is, you know, writing a novel is a job. You've got to put your butt in a chair and write every day. And even if it's only 30 minutes a day, they would say, you've got to keep the machinery oiled. And that's what I was doing on the morning commuter train. I think it was a 29 minute ride. And I wrote all the way. That's all I could find. That was the only time I could find, but I wrote every day. So you, did you write longhand? Like on a, I did. Wow, I did. Wow. And then after four years of that, uh, there was this thing called the personal computer that was invented. And I decided to buy one. I bought a used portable computer that weighed only 40 pounds. And uh, I had the support of my ex in doing all of this. She was very supportive of my desire to write. And uh, so I typed in what I had and, of course, then began really working on the ending. Uh, But if it were not for the invention of the PC, you and I would not be having this conversation because that's how I managed to fit together all the little scraps and pieces I had written out on the commuter train. And then Presumed Innocent became the the big Hollywood movie with Harrison Ford. Yeah. Stephen King, he's often quite kind of dismissive a lot of the adaptations of his work. I was just wondering what your Hollywood experience was like. And uh, have you liked the adaptations that have been made of your, your books? Well, you know, it's funny. I was listening to the New Yorker radio hour last night and my friend, not intimate, but friend, Joyce Carol Oates was on. Somebody was asking her about a movie based on one of her books. And Joyce said, of course, the appropriate thing. She said, well, it's a separate work of art. And, you know, as if it's not even to me, Joyce, to decide whether I like it or not. It's, and certainly I'm going to judge it on its own terms and not whether it's faithful to my vision. As usual, Joyce, Joyce was very acute in those remarks. Uh, Sidney Pollack, when he bought Presumed Innocence, said, look, let's agree on something. It's your book and it's my movie. I've always been straight in my head about that. I try to, as Joyce commends, regard it as a separate work of art. And it's, it's silly, Matt, for a novelist to pretend that you know, a movie like Presumed Innocent doesn't influence perception of his work. It's such a vast medium in terms of its audience. But you know, I, I judge these enterprises, and you're right, I've been lucky enough that there have been an, a number uh, and a couple in the process right now by whether they're, you know, sincere efforts. And they always have been. I've met a lot of wonderful people in Hollywood, hugely talented people who remain dear friends. And, that's, and that is true, by the way, whether what they've attempted even made it onto the screen. You know, it's, it, there's a personal saying about Hollywood that in Hollywood, you have to accept the bitter with the bad. And uh, it, it's, it's not a place where usually your dreams are, your dreams come true. But uh, I've been fascinated with what's been done. It, was there any talk of you ever writing, you know, d- doing the screenplay or anything like that of Presumed Innocent? Well, you know, my view of writing a screenplay based on my own novel is that that would be like performing surgery on myself. Because every screenplay as my dear friend Brian Dennehy pointed out to me when I first met him, is an abridgment of the novel. So 
I have not been tempted to do that. But in the last decade, I have done some writing of pilots for, you know, I love, I love streaming series and got into that pretty early. So I've, I've written a few pilot scripts, always with collaborators. You know, some of them have been good by my lights. Some of them have not been good by my lights. But at, at any rate, it's been interesting to do, but it's like a sidelight. It's like, for me, it's like having a hobby. And it's, it's not to be confused with the, you know, my principal work as a writer, which is writing novels. Well, that seems like a good place to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. In a world that's constantly changing, the law and how it's practiced must also evolve to keep up with those changes. The ABA Journal's Asked and Answered podcast dives into the compelling stories surrounding lawyers' personal and professional lives. I'm your host, Stephanie Francis Ward, and each month I bring on a new guest to explore their involvement with our dynamic legal ecosystem. For the stories that bring the law to life, follow the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. So I'm here with novelist Scott Turow to talk about his new book, Suspect. When I think of legal thriller writers, I often think of uh, writers like you and John Grisham. I was just wondering, though, are there like any new kids on the block in terms of legal thriller writing that you admire as kind of up-and-coming writers that you, you enjoy reading? Well, I'll mention two. One is my friend David Ellis, who's got a fine career in his own name and also writes some of James Patterson's novels. Dave, Dave is a very good legal thriller writer. The other, sort of in a more serious vein, is also a friend slash acquaintance, Bill Landay, who wrote Defending Jacob and uh, has now got a new book that I just read last week coming out called All That Is Mine I Carry With Me. And I, I think that's a terrific book too. But if I were advising your listeners, I would say keep your eye on both of those guys. And we actually had David on the um, show. Um, he was my, the last person I interviewed. But yeah, I should um, ask you to, I asked you earlier about kind of how your career in law informs your novel writing. What about the reverse? Does How much does the uh, novel writing inform how you write as a lawyer? I, I do think legal writing improved my novel writing in the sense that, you know, when you're a young quote unquote artist, you think every word is precious. Whereas a judge who has a 15-page limit for a memorandum of law does not think every word is precious. And you've got to cut and be scrupulous with yourself. So that helped. And, you know, a lot of the, the flourishes of novel writing are, you know, verboten in legal writing. You know, I, I do enjoy the kind of Hemingway-esque leanness of a statement of facts. There are no metaphors. Nobody's talking about love. It's a much more restricted vocabulary. But it's all been helpful in teaching me to sort of gear myself down when I'm writing novels. And you mentioned some of the film projects and TV projects are coming yeah. up. Can, can you speak about those? What's, what's sure. coming up? Sure. Well, there's two in the works now. The first is a remake of Presumed Innocent. I like to say that you know you're getting old when you're alive to see the remake. So Apple TV Plus is doing an eight-part series, uh, limited series, 
based on presumed innocent. Uh, it's the combined work of J.J. Abrams' Bad Robot under the leadership, in this case, of uh, Dusty Thomas, a fine writer and novelist and producer. And in my view, the greatest TV writer out there, David E. Kelly. They're well on the way. They're going to start filming in January. And then because of my contact with David, he ended up reading Suspect and decided that he, he wanted to option that too. So, you know, that, that goes in the, the long queue of things to write that David has, but I presume he'll be getting to that. He thinks Pinky, as many of the reviewers have suggested, is kind of prime time for a recurring limited series, you know, an eight episode production every year. Uh, and that's what he's going to be aiming to do with her. Is that um, what you're planning for your next novel too? Are you going to revisit Pinky or have you got something else planned completely? No, different? you know, it'll be interesting to see, assuming that David gets Pinky on the air and he's better at getting things on the air than just about anybody else in that business. It'll be interesting to see how he approaches her next story because I have no doubt that he's going to ask me what I think. And, and we've started that conversation, but I've, I have not made any promises to him or myself that I'm going to write another Pinky novel, and certainly not very quickly. Uh, I'm already into my next project, and it does not involve Pinky. But we'll see. We'll see what what how David approaches this, if and when we get that opportunity for season two of Suspect. And, and so what's the next novel about? Or is it too early to talk about? It's, um, I, I don't know why I've been reluctant to be too specific about what I'm writing. And I really ought to say that uh, I am going back to Rusty Savage for a third time, who was the protagonist of Presumed Innocent. Rusty is going to be cast in the role he's never had. He's been a judge, he's been a prosecutor, he's been a defendant, but now he's going to be the defense lawyer for a young man who is almost his stepson. Well, um, it's been a pleasure talking with you today and congratulations on the new book. Matt, thank you very much. I appreciate the interview. I'm Matt Reynolds, a legal affairs writer of the ABA Journal, filling in for your usual host, Lee Rawls. Thanks for listening to today's show. And if you enjoyed it, please write us on your favorite podcasting app.